A brief content warning before we get started. This episode of Haunted Spouse contains a description and discussion of death by suicide. If you're not in a place today to hear about this topic, this might be a good episode to skip. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against the hills, holding darkness within. It had stood for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked Welcome to Haunted Spouse, a haunted house podcast. I'm your ghost host, Ben Casey, and this is my haunted spouse and co-host, Laura. Hello. Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Here's a spoiler alert. If you haven't read this book and don't want it spoiled, stop the podcast here, read the book, and then come back. Ghost host here from beyond the end of the podcast. We also have spoilers for The Shining. So a little background on Haunting of Hill House. It was published in 1959 which, as we mentioned in episode one, is the same year that House on Haunted Hill was released, and also Disney's Haunted Mansion attraction was in development. The book has also been cited as influential by a number of authors, including Stephen King, who called it one of the finest horror novels of the late 20th century. And eventually, when we get around to our episode on The Shining, I think we'll see a very clear line of inspiration from The Haunting of Hill House to The Shining, particularly in the psychological aspects of the characters and the building slash house. It has also been adapted to film, stage, radio, and most recently television. This novel follows the classic concept of a haunted house exploration that I always think of in terms of There being a group of people who go in to explore a mansion that has been abandoned and is rumored to be haunted because of its history or things that have happened in that home. I call that a Scooby-Doo setup. (laughs) So let's go through the characters, our little cast of characters for our exploration group. And then after that, we'll talk about the house itself, take a little tour of the house and the hauntings that happened previously before the events of the story. And then we will briefly cover the hauntings themselves. So I just reread Haunting of Hill House. I think I read it for the first time two years ago. So there was a lot for me to 
review. I think, Ben, you read it around the same time. Is that right? Yes. I think we both had the audiobook right around the same time. I haven't had a chance to go back and reread the whole thing since, but I did read the Spark Notes last night. <laughs> which is basically the which same is thing. basically like reading the book. Exactly. Um, so I think what we'll do is I will mention the characters and you tell me what you remember about them. All right. Okay, so let's start with Dr. Montague. Liam Neeson. Nope, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so he was an anthropologist who had an interest in studying hauntings and paranormal events. And so he wanted to try and maintain a scientific manner of investigation. Yes, he felt that that added legitimacy to his studies. He had been seeking out a haunted house and then people to research it with him so that he could have an experience like the one he had read about for other paranormal investigators. And so it's his idea that brings everybody together to do this investigation. So if we were to tie it to something similar, it's a little bit like, again, House on Haunted Hill, they've got the psychiatrist there who is at least ostensibly there to study these kinds of events and to determine what is purely psychological as opposed to possibly supernatural. Mm -hmm. At the same time, in some ways, he's like the eccentric millionaire (laughs) who set up the whole thing. Yeah. So he's kind of taking on a couple couple of roles Mm -hmm. here. And then next we have Eleanor. So she had been caring for her mom and had experienced a supernatural or paranormal event during that period of time. And at the beginning of the story, her mom has passed away. Eleanor is now living with her sister and her sister's husband and is kind of feeling restricted by this situation, wanting to finally experience freedom now that she's not stuck caring for her mother. That kind of sets the stage for her involvement. Yep, that's right. I think her mom had been sick for like nine years. Do you remember why it was that Dr. Montague invited Eleanor specifically? I think, was it because of her experience with the the poltergeist? Mm -hmm. Dr. Montague invited specific people who he had found through digging through old newspapers and other records to try to find people connected to the other world. Eleanor had experienced paranormal activity in the form of poltergeists, probably throwing rocks down at her childhood home right after her father passed. This happened so long ago that she doesn't even really think about it or remember it. And if I recall, had she kind of convinced herself that it wasn't a thing? Yeah, that's right. Um, Because her mother had always said that it was the neighbor who she says hates them. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And then next we have Theodora. She's the cool one. And if I recall, she has some form of psychic ability. She had been tested in a lab. The test was guessing the number on the back of cards. I think something with cards. And she got a statistically improbable number correct (laughs) on three different trials. Okay. 
throughout the book also, she seems to be able to have a really good empathic sense for what other people are thinking or experiencing, which might even go into knowing what they're thinking. Okay. But this often comes off as just having really good people skills. Mm. And then Luke. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I promise that's the last time I will reference that terrible, terrible movie. In this episode. In this episode. Until we have to watch it. (laughs) Um, So Luke is the heir to the house. And if I recall, was it one of the stipulations of the family allowing Montague to do this was that a member of the family be present? And they also, as a family, kind of don't like Luke all that much, so they pick him. Yep. That's pretty much. They want to scare him straight. Yeah, because he's kind of a cad. Yeah. Um, And then two other characters that I'm going to mention are Mrs. Montague and Arthur. They arrive at the house about three quarters of the way into the book. It's after the others have been there for close to a week. Mrs. Montague is married to Dr. Montague. She is also a paranormal investigator of sorts. (laughs) She thinks that what she does is superior to what he does I think it's implied. Mm -hmm. Um, She is more of a spiritualist slash medium. Yeah. Like, I kind of get the vibe that if this book were written today, she would kind of fit that, like, celebrity medium vibe. Like, she would have a TV show or something. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or she would think she deserves one. Yes. She thinks very highly of her skills. She uses the planchette. And then also she brings along with her Arthur. He is the headmaster of a boys' school. He really likes sports. He doesn't have a lot going on intellectually, but he really likes sports. Um, I don't have a lot to say about him. I was going to say, yeah, it's unclear if the implication is that he is her fling or her GBF or just a lackey. Yeah, unclear. Okay, now let's talk about Hill House itself. In this story, Hill House does get a proper haunted house introduction, maybe a fifth to a quarter of the way through the story. Eleanor arrives at the house, and we get to experience her first impression of it. So we're going to go with an excerpt from the book, because nobody does it better than Shirley Jackson. And this is from Eleanor's perspective. It was an act of moral strength to lift her foot and set it on the bottom step, and she thought that her deep unwillingness to touch Hill House for the first time came directly from the vivid feeling that it was waiting for her, evil but patient. Journey's end in lover's meeting, she thought, remembering her song at last, and laughed, standing on the steps of Hill House, journey's end in lover's meeting. And she put her feet down firmly and went up to the veranda and the door. Hill House came around her in a rush. She was enshadowed, and the sound of her feet on the wood of the veranda was an outrage in the utter silence, as though it had been a very long time since feet stamped across the boards of Hill House. She brought her hand up to the heavy iron knocker that had a child's face, determined to make more noise and yet more, so that Hill House might be very sure she was there. And then the door opened without warning, and she was looking at a woman who, if like ever-merited like, could only be the wife of the man at the gate. 
The hall in which they stood was overfull of dark wood and weighty carving, dim under the heaviness of the staircase, which lay back from the farther end. Above there seemed to be another hallway, going the width of the house. She could see a wide landing, and then, across the staircase well, doors closed along the upper hall. On either side of her now were great double doors, carved with fruit and grain and living things. All the doors she could see in this house were closed. Okay, so she has just met Mr. Dudley, who is the groundskeeper, who was very surly and did not want to let her in. And the woman she meets in the house is Mrs. Dudley, his wife. She is the cook, and she also keeps the interior of Hill House well-kept, cleaned, all of that. Eleanor is the first of the investigative crew to arrive at the house. Mm -hmm. Pretty soon after, Theo arrives, and then Luke and Dr. Montague as well. They have dinner. And then they sit down in the parlor, and Dr. Montague is finally ready to tell them the history of Hill House. He says that Hill House has not been fit for human habitation for upward of 20 years. And he kind of raises the question, has the house always been haunted, or is it haunted because of something that happened? It's kind of a chicken and egg question. Mm. So there was initially a family that lived in this home. And then after that, nobody who has come to stay in the house has stayed more than a few days. He says, quote, Every tenant who has left Hill House hastily has made an effort to supply a rational reason for leaving, and yet every one of them has left. End quote. Hmm. So Dr. Montague tells them that Hill House was built 80 years before, so I think that puts it in the 1870s, 1880s. A man named Hugh Crane built the home intending to grow old in it and have his grandchildren own the home, etc. When he was moving his family into the new house, his wife died just minutes before she would have laid eyes on the house. The carriage bringing her to Hill House was overturned, and she passed away. But she left behind two daughters who did grow up in the house. Hugh Crane married again, his second wife died of a fall, and then the third, Mrs. Crane, died of consumption somewhere in Europe. Hugh Crane left his daughters under the care of their mother's cousin, I think, while he went off to Europe, so he wasn't around much as they were growing up. The two Crane daughters spent most of their lives fighting over Hill House, They decided, eventually, that Hill House would become the property of the older sister because the younger had married. The older sister hired a girl from the village nearby to be her companion in her old age. The two sisters were still in constant disagreement over the house because the younger sister argued that she should be able to take some of the nicer pieces from the house, that they they belonged to her. But the older sister disagreed. The older sister ultimately died of pneumonia there in the house, with only her companion to help her. There were stories of a doctor being called too late, of the sister lying neglected upstairs while the companion was in the garden with somebody, but those are just rumors, so they don't know for sure. They allude to other tragedies connected to the house. Dr. Montague says, 
Quote, Hill House has a reputation for insistent hospitality. It seemingly dislikes letting its guests get away. The last person who tried to leave Hill House in darkness, it was 18 years ago, I grant you, was killed at the turn in the driveway where his horse bolted and crushed him against the big tree. Unquote. There was also a lawsuit over the house. During the lawsuit, it came out that the older sister accused the younger sister of sneaking into the house and stealing things because she always felt like she heard somebody in the home at night. But the younger sister always argued that she would never come into the house at night. After the older sister's death, a lawsuit followed over who owned the house because she had actually left it to the companion. The younger sister felt like this was a little suspicious and also really still wanted the house. Ultimately, the companion won the lawsuit. The younger sister continued to harass the companion. The companion even accused the younger sister of sneaking in at night to steal the silver. And so over time, she grew very paranoid and was constantly in terror of the house being burgled. So ultimately, she killed herself. If I'm remembering right, I think she threw herself off the tower. Does that sound right? It was something to do with the turret, yeah. And the house itself also has a very disconcerting architecture. The corners of rooms are slightly out of square. The stairs have a slant to them. Uh, Doors and windows are hung off-center and swing themselves shut. And even the hallways are designed as a maze of concentric circles. Dr. Montague even says that he thinks Hugh Crane might have drawn inspiration from the Winchester House in California. Ooh, a crossover episode. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I think making a connection isn't totally ridiculous in this case, Mm -hmm. or isn't a total stretch. A couple main places that I want to mention that we'll want to know about. The group spends their evenings in the parlor after dinner. There is a kitchen where Mrs. Dudley does all her cooking and all of her work, and there's a bunch of doors onto the veranda for no reason that they can understand other than it allows her to make a quick exit. There is also a library that Eleanor refuses to go into. The smelly library. (laughs) Is it smelly? That's what she says. (laughs) Eleanor said it smells bad. Yeah, I think at one point she says... I remember now. I think she says it smells like decay. So that's great. Um, She doesn't want to go in there because it smells bad. In the library is a spiral staircase that goes up to a tower. As one has, (laughs) that tower will also become important at some point as well. And with that, I think we're going to take a quick break and then we'll jump into the hauntings. Okay, I'm going to preface this by saying that running through the hauntings really quick, it's not really going to give you a sense of the building tension and terror that occurs in this book. And I highly recommend that you go ahead and read the book because Jackson does a fantastic job of building suspense. With that said, here are all the hauntings that happen in Haunting of Hill House. (laughs) The titular haunting. Yes. So the way this is set up, little different things will happen throughout the 
eight or nine days that they're at the house that kind of ramp up in intensity over time. So the very first thing actually happens when it's just Theodora and Eleanor there at the very beginning. They go explore the grounds. They think they see something move by the brook. This causes them to run right back to the house because they get a bad feeling about it. That night, Dr. Montague leaves the group to get a chess set and says he thinks he saw something, but he knows it's only his imagination. (laughs) But that they probably ought to stay together, or at least in pairs, throughout their stay. Um, Then we have the doors that seem to close on their own. Dr. Montague and Luke propped the doors leading into the dining room so that the women could find their way. But as soon as they came down the stairs, all of the doors shut on their own. Then you have the smelly library. (laughs) Eleanor almost falls off of the veranda. She gets dizzy. By the way, I did not know what a veranda was until I read this book. (laughs) Did I Google it? I sure did. So I learned something today. What exactly is a veranda? I think it's a porch, essentially. Okay. Um, There is a cold spot and a draft in front of the nursery. It's either the second or third night that Eleanor and Theodora awake to hearing loud banging on the doors of their rooms. Simultaneously, Dr. Montague and Luke had been lured outside of the house because they thought they heard a dog in the upstairs hallway, ran after it out of the house... That left Theodora and Nell alone. They thought they heard this banging coming down the hall, banging on each door, and then felt like they were hearing it coming from way up high, higher than anyone could reach. Hmm. So that's creepy. Mm-hmm. They discover a message written in huge letters in chalk on the wall that says, Help Eleanor come home which kind of cues the reader into starting to see themes of home and see Eleanor starting to see Hill House as her home. The thermometer doesn't want to respond as they try to measure the temperature of the cold spot. (laughs) They also can't hold the tape measure to try to measure its dimensions because it's so cold. They keep dropping the tape measure. That's interesting because the thermometer bit has you thinking they're like oh it doesn't actually affect physical things but then they do the tape measure and it does Uh uh-huh so it's yeah that's cool i agree theodora goes into her room to find blood all over her room and her clothes such that she has to share a room with eleanor after that and also borrow eleanor's clothes At the very end of the book, they go back to investigate that room and discover that the blood's gone. And she can wear her clothes again just fine. Hmm. I have that there is an apparition of a tea party and a little family. I don't remember this. (laughs) I believe at some point when Eleanor and Theodora are walking outside together, a pretty decent way into the book i believe and like they see the path change they see that scene in front of them and i think theodora looks behind them and says run 
or something like that. That's right. And she, she never says what she saw, and she's and Eleanor doesn't actually look back, but yeah, something seemed to be behind them. Mm-hmm. The book is written in third person, but we're also privy to Eleanor's internal thoughts as well. Is that third person? Limited, limited? I think. Yeah. Yeah. What's the one word? Omniscient. Oh, where and then what's the one where you don't get anyone's thoughts? Or just is third that, person. That's just third I, person. I think. Maybe okay. there's a term for it. Yeah. I say that with like, like I'm so sure about that. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> of the two of us, you're, you're the maybe most it's third to... person. Unlo- oh no, that'd be omniscient. <laughs> Restricted, maybe, but because uh, limited just already means that anyway. Okay, it's at this point that Mrs. Montague and Arthur arrive. They do a couple of seances. The first seance is actually quite successful. They get a message from Nell asking them to help her come home. Because Eleanor goes by Nell sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember to what extent that was brought up like earlier in the book or not. Yeah, I'm not sure if Mrs. Montague... They've all been calling her Nell. Oh, okay. So they have been calling her Nell up mm-hmm. until that point. The second seance is not successful, and Mrs. Montague blames the rest of them for being non-believers and says that Theodora and Eleanor have not even the slightest connection to the spirits. So she kind of gives me a Professor Trelawney from Harry Potter vibe because she's right a couple of times but mostly she's just full of BS. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that connection to Trelawney, but that's pretty spot on. <laughs> so the rest of these happen in just the last couple of days. The first night that Mrs. Montague and Arthur are there, the original four gather in Dr. Montague's room when the banging comes back. But the next morning, Mrs. Montague and Arthur say that they couldn't sleep a wink because there was a branch knocking against Arthur's window all night, and the room was too stuffy for Mrs. Montague. (laughs) Which makes it seem like some people are able to hear some of the manifestations and others don't. Mm. Nell goes out by the brook by herself she's kind of started breaking off from the group more and more frequently and she feels held by a presence and then feels very cold right after she also hears someone walking and singing when they're all gathered in the parlor and clearly nobody else is experiencing this eleanor says she can hear everything even things happening in different parts of the house than where she is that she shouldn't be able to hear and that no one else can hear. It kind of feels like she's starting to become incorporated with the house. The last night there at Hill House, Eleanor wakes up in the middle of the night, sneaks out of her room, and goes to the library. She hears her mom calling her upstairs, so she runs upstairs and then starts banging on all the doors. This does wake everybody up. They start looking for her. She runs out to the kitchen, runs out to the yard, and then she comes back in and dances with Hugh Crane, she says, and then finds herself back at the tower. 
she climbs the staircase in the library that previously she just felt she couldn't approach, that she felt was forbidden to her. The staircase has started to rot away from the wall, so it looks like she might fall and hurt herself. At this point, the group has found her. Eleanor ascends the stairway. She wants to get to the top, and she feels kind of dizzy as she's going up the stairway. And you kind of feel her being of two minds. One feeling unsafe, and one wanting to be at the top to get to the trapdoor. The group finds her here, and they send Luke up after her. It seems as though the stairway might collapse, so he really risks his life to go up there and try to help her down, which he is able to do successfully. The next morning, they all kind of agree that it's time for Eleanor to leave because they feel she's vulnerable to the malevolent spirits in the house, and they don't want her to hurt herself or somebody else. Eleanor, at this point, really doesn't want to leave because she feels she has nothing to go back to, but it's clear that everyone else has decided it's time for her to go. Mrs. Montague asks several times if it doesn't seem like it would be a better idea for Arthur to drive Eleanor back, but Dr. Montague insists that she has to leave the way that she came, driving herself. So they get Eleanor into the car. She says her goodbyes. Eleanor starts driving away from Hill House, and then as she turns the bend, crashes her car directly into the tree. Okay, so... I guess I want to start the discussion off by asking you just overall, what do you think of this book? Or how do you feel that it fits into what we think of as a haunted house? What does The Haunting of Hill House accomplish for you? Mm. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with the, the beginning of that, just kind of the general what I think about this book. Um, I really like it, in part because I really enjoy this type of haunted house story. For a lot of the same reasons why I enjoy, like, The Shining, which seems to have been directly inspired by a lot of the things that I like about this. The the psychological aspects, how much of this is the characters thinking or believing these things, how much is actually happening. And it's really interesting to go back and read something like this, because especially where film kind of takes over with telling haunted house stories it focuses much more on visual things happening I feel like and I think we see this in the 1999 remake of The Haunting of Hill House or of The Haunting because they focus a lot on these special effects and things that are being seen whereas what's really interesting about this is how much of it is based on things that you're not seeing or things that are implied or things that a character sees but doesn't tell anyone else. It's an interesting way to also tell a story about a character while also telling the story of this house and the way that Nell's story becomes wrapped up in the house. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a theme of haunted houses kind of choosing a vulnerable victim, somebody who is going to play along well with what the house wants to happen. 
Dr. Montague brings the group of them together because he says something like he hopes that each of them in their own way will kind of bring out the phenomena that he's hoping to see from the house. But for me, it kind of felt like each character was an ingredient, like a raw ingredient. And when put in the house together, the house manipulates and acts on each person Mm. to create the scenario that it wants so that it eventually gets Eleanor. Yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, it does seem like in certain parts, like it's actively playing them against her. Mm-hmm. It's singling her out in ways that make them suspicious of her and make them question her. Kind of make them gaslight her sometimes. Yeah, uh, which only pushes her closer to becoming one with the house. It's stated multiple times that she really wants to be a part of something. Mm. And she even says that this is the first time that she's really felt like a part of a group, the first time she's ever truly been happy. Mm. When the house kind of sows this psychological conflict, it drives a wedge between her and everyone else and makes her almost like attached to the house. Yeah, because I'm thinking about... One of the things in the introduction that it talks about is the theme of Eleanor both wanting to be a part of something and also wanting to be alone. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting in that with the house, she has both. She can be a part of the house while at the same time, like, whatever walked there walked alone. Like, (laughs) being completely alone in this Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that also speaks to the unique type of loneliness that you can feel when you, even though you live with other people, if you don't feel connected or accepted by them or you don't have the solitude that human beings require, you can feel so painfully alone despite being around people all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she definitely has that, like, with her sister and uh, her sister's husband, that sense of she's living with them, in fact, in a rather intimate living arrangement that she's, like, sleeping in their nursery, and yet... With their five-year-old. With their five-year-old, and yet is so isolated from them. Mm -hmm. And then when she finally has this opportunity to be a part of something and connect then the house starts driving a wedge and isolates her again. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of another question that I had. What do you think their socioeconomic status is? She does, She never talks about working, and I know it probably wasn't that common for women to work, but mm-hmm. working class women worked, I'm assuming. Yeah. And we know that the patriarch of their house, before the sister got married died when she was younger when she was a kid and then she doesn't work the whole time she's i mean she's certainly working when (laughs) she's caring for her mother in fact she's working 24 7 but she's not getting paid yeah it's not really stated whether it's a situation of like if they're able to live off of insurance or some form of pension from the father or Or if he left yeah yeah if he left them something or if maybe the mother receives some kind of support yeah it's not really clear 
it's clear that she's not used to ever being waited on, but she also doesn't seem to be quite working class either. Like, she seems somewhat disconnected from reality in a way that someone of a lower socioeconomic status wouldn't have the luxury of being. Mm -hmm. And she also talks about after she leaves Hill House, she's going to go get an apartment and live with Theodora. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know if that just never entered into her calculations or if she's just supported by her sister's family or how that works exactly. Yeah, she feels like the kind of person who's never had to think about logistics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about uh, right. <laughs> Which speaks to a certain level of privilege for sure. Yeah, and also to a certain level of not coddling, but I guess like infantilizing that she's had at the hands of her mother and mm-hmm. now her sister. And also probably just being a woman, there wouldn't maybe have been expectation for her to think about those things. Maybe it is her brother-in-law's responsibility. Yeah. Even though she's 32, I think. Is this her younger or older sister? I don't remember. Because I'm realizing now that they're kind of a little bit like the Crane sisters. Yeah. And that one gets married and does kind of her own thing and the other doesn't but feels like she has rights to certain things and I think also the sense of conflict yeah is something that comes up and then it's also repeated in her relationship with Theodora they get really close really fast and then they start having all these tiffs and stuff which does lead to that really great line where like Theodora says something to her about like her always going where she isn't wanted and Eleanor responds that she's never been wanted anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. Are you annoyed by Eleanor? Yes. In some ways. Okay. Tell me about that. (laughs) What do you mean in some ways? Well, because I think, I think in some ways, like she's a very kind of tragic, pitiable character because I think, I don't think she is necessarily responsible for how she is. Um, I totally agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, because I think in some ways, like, she is a grown-up woman who spends a lot of the book acting like a child because she was never allowed to be a child and to grow up from being a child and... So there are certain, certain, just certain ways that she behaves that I find annoying. And maybe that says something about me, too. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I've, especially the first time I read the book, I found her so annoying. (laughs) And this time reading it, I still found her annoying. But this thing happens to me when I reread stuff or re-experience stuff is I start having a little bit more empathy for the character's that are clearly flawed. Yeah. Because I start wondering, okay, what's your backstory? You know, that thing we always do with villains where they always end up with their own movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of her interactions at Hill House are very codependent, but like, of course they are because yeah. <laughs> I, I was noticing, well, she's never had the opportunity to figure out who she is and what her identity is. Mm-hmm. But then I wonder, did a lot of women even have that opportunity 
in the 50s? Was that even something that could have been expected of her? Yeah. I do think that's what makes her psychologically vulnerable, though. Well, because she even mentions uh, when she is alone with Luke for a brief period of time, she mentions it's her first time ever being alone with a man. Oh, that's and right. And talking to him. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that's maybe part of it is going from, at least on like initial read through, I'm putting myself kind of into some of the other character's shoes and thinking like, oh yeah, I would be just as annoyed as they are with this person who who I've just met and has already said that she wants the apartment next to mine after this is over. <laughs> like, oh my. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, yeah, like you kind of come at it again from her perspective and it's like, yeah, you are just looking for anyone that you can connect with yeah i have to fight a very strong inclination to victim blame too Mm. especially on the second read through i know what's going to happen to her and she's kind of been identified early on as being the one who's kind of psychologically weak and i think i extra want to distance myself from her and blame her because a lot of the time i can really identify with certain experiences that she has like the experience of feeling like you want to be part of the group but you're not really sure if you're like cool enough to be part of the group yeah or being really aware of when you said something awkward and that now you're kind of feeling a little bit excluded or just that feeling of being unmoored that she doesn't really have anything to go back to she doesn't have a strong sense of herself She either looks to other people or to her role to create that identity for her, but Mm. she doesn't have that role anymore. Yeah. And I think that feeling of not having anything to anchor you is kind of an overwhelming feeling. And I I remember feeling that as a freshman in college. Like, (laughs) I I just didn't know what I was doing in a whole new place, and you kind of have to get your bearings and start actually figuring out who you are. And that's where you can get more of a sense of stability, I think, psychologically and logistically even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. It, it is kind of interesting. Cause like I, and then I'm trying to think through because on the one hand, I don't want to think of her as just a character who for the entire story is just kind of at the whims of everyone else. But it kind of, she kind of goes from one person to the next like she has like her parts with Theodora but then the house starts driving itself in between that and so then she starts latching on to the house through her mother Mm -hmm. so almost this connection back to the identity that she lost when her mother died yeah and I and I guess you could say that maybe she is sort of taking control at the end when she drives into the tree, but even then, it's how much of that... I think, isn't she even questioning why she's doing it? Yeah, and actually, <laughs> I want to read that section because Dr. Montague says that the menace of the supernatural is not in physical attacks, but that it attacks where modern minds are weakest, where we have abandoned our protective armor of superstition and have no substitute defense. To me, I think that sounds like the subconscious. Mm. My reading is that throughout the 
book, I think Eleanor is of two minds. On the one side, she is really trying to fight for herself, and that's kind of more of her conscious mind. But then there's the other side that the house is taking advantage of, which I think is the side where she feels fear, the side where she wants to do whatever it takes to be included. Hmm. Yeah. She's the uh, the college freshman who hasn't figured out her identity and is open to just kind of taking on whatever identity gets her into the group that she like latches on to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we're going to be goths this week, I'll be a goth this week. <laughs> or if we're going to be in, I don't know, debate club, then I'll do that <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. I am really doing it, she thought, turning the wheel to send the car directly at the great tree at the curve of the driveway. I am really doing it. I am doing this all by myself now, at last. This is me. I am really, really, really doing it by myself. In the unending, crashing second before the car hurled into the tree, she thought clearly, Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why don't they stop me? And that last bit, I think, is her conscious mind. And it, I think that's the most chilling part of the whole book. <laughs> yes. That, like, her first true moment of clarity and control comes in the last second of her life. When it's too late to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrific. Yeah. I think when I first read it, I was kind of with you where I was looking for, like, is this just a sad story of someone never gaining agency in their life? And I think that might be part of it. But I also wonder if this is a sad story about how we're failing a lot of people in our society. Even in the very last moments, she's reaching out for connection to anybody in that group. But they've kind of walled themselves off from her, especially after her performance the night before. I don't know how to describe it, but it kind of feels like if society hadn't set her up in this way, or if more people had been willing to listen to her, connect with her, Maybe just that one connection could have made a difference. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think Jackson writes about women a lot, and it seems like there is a theme of the roles constructed for women and themes of feeling both agoraphobic and trapped. Yeah. So I wonder if there might be something there. Huh. It definitely makes me think twice about, like, the discomfort or, like, the annoyance that I have when I'm, like, sympathizing with the other characters when put in the context of how much those connections mean to Eleanor. By the same token, 
if she'd had an opportunity to grow up and to build an identity and have a life back home pre-Hill House that she enjoyed or had her own projects or family or, or whatever. Yeah. That she wouldn't be reliant on those connections either, you know? Yeah. And maybe that's like the real tragedy is just how simple of a thing it could have been for anyone in her life to help her to have even just the slightest degree of autonomy and control. And not even just individuals, but also like the society as a whole. Yeah. I want to emphasize that I don't think it's any one person's singular responsibility, including Eleanor's. But rather, I think it speaks to an overwhelming loneliness and the importance of having an environment in which she can develop emotionally. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad you read that. I think it brings back around to what I was saying about looking for any part of the story where she's not just at the will of those around her or just at the will of the house, but actually having her own will. That piece kind of makes me feel like that is the point, is that she doesn't until this very ending piece, this very last second of her life where she finally has clarity. Yeah, it's really, it's really tragic. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make statements about trying to guess author's intent, but I do like to find what might be a theme or a message. And as I'm reading it again, I'm wondering if that might be part of it. If maybe there's not necessarily a solution being offered, but just, well, being a woman in that society, maybe you do kind of feel like Eleanor. The way the book is written, it kind of feels like she has this destiny she's going to fulfill. And maybe it's a comment on the structure of the society that you have this path that you're supposed to take and you can try to get off that track, but it's really hard. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what one takes from that. (laughs) Yeah, it's... It's definitely tragic, and there's a lot that could be read into it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the supernatural themes and try to tease apart the difference between a haunting and possessions and other paranormal activity. So what do you think about that conversation that Dr. Montague has about the types of paranormal activity they're experiencing? Because he draws a differentiation between poltergeist hauntings, which in the world of the book have also been documented to occur, versus other types of hauntings, almost like they're on a spectrum. Yeah. 
I did think it was interesting to see him kind of drawing the line between, yeah, like poltergeists almost being this baser form of haunting that is physical. Because I think, isn't it in the context of he's talking about how like the ghosts can't cause you physical harm? A poltergeist might, but it's this baser, more primal thing than a than like the psychological effects of a ghost haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting. I don't really have a great background in terms of knowing what the difference is, quote unquote, in real life. <laughs> uh, I know there's the movie Poltergeist, but I don't really know exactly if this is talking about the same type of Poltergeist or if this, if the book is kind of creating its own. Like structure. Yeah. Yeah. From what I've gleaned from popular culture, that seems to fit. Mm. Um, I thought it was really interesting that he kind of just even went out and said that, like, when there's a poltergeist present that will often drive out the other beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of makes sense. It does seem <laughs> like they'd be annoying roommates. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so I think that kind of brings me to thinking about, as we're defining a haunted house, or at least a classic haunted house, that distinction of it being that the danger is psychological as opposed to physical, that really stands out to me. Mm. Because I think that in my mind does make a difference. Because there's a lot of haunted castles and haunted houses that are haunted by a monster that Mm. does physical harm to you. Like maybe it's a castle with a vampire in it, like in Dracula. Or there's like a demon or something that lives in the house that then goes and possesses people who stay in the house. But to me, that feels different than haunting. Haunting feels more subtle and more like the spirit is turning the person against themselves rather than fully taking over the person's body. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. As opposed to a possession where it's kind of taking control over you in this case, it's like inceptioning. Yeah. You. <laughs> yeah, it makes you think it's your idea. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know about you, but that I find that to be much more scary to me than the things that are physical dangers in horror, or even the things that are like possessions, is the stuff that's subtle like that. You may not even understand or realize what's happening. Or you might and still be drawn into it. Yeah, I feel like it scratches a certain horror itch Mm. in a way that a lot of the other ones don't. And it's hard for me to really compare because uh, (laughs) there's some pretty scary stuff to me in the physical realm as well. Yeah. But there's a a certain type of hauntingness that you feel, Mm. a certain type of creepiness of the insidious nature of something changing your thoughts, but not literally changing them, influencing you to change your own thoughts. Yeah. Or influencing you to think it's your idea. Yeah. Maybe that also is a little bit of like what I like about The Shining, the book, and like less about The Shining, the movie. And not to get too much into that, because that'll be its own episode later, but I think this ties back into this idea of kind of physical versus psychological. In the book, some of the horror is 
the way that he is against his will being turned and convinced and being messed with in these ways that lead him to be doing these bad things. And that's the horror, whereas in the movie, some of that happens, but the scary part is him chasing people and like the physical danger that he poses, Mm -hmm. I feel like. The idea of being chased by a crazed man with a fire axe is scary. What I find even scarier is the idea of being twisted into the kind of person who will chase another person with a fire axe. Not just another person, but your haunted spouse. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And, I mean, maybe some of that comes down to my privileges to some extent, and that I am relatively privileged to generally not face physical danger often. And so for me, the horror is the idea of being the kind of person who would do that rather than being afraid of that kind of person, maybe. But we can dive into that when we talk about The Shining. (laughs) really interesting because The Shining breaks from the tradition of having a, quote, young girl (laughs) be the protagonist that gets haunted. In The Shining, the person who is haunted and is the protagonist is the husband slash father. And I think you bring up a really interesting point because in that one, actually, he does a lot of harm to other people. He does mm-hmm. harm to himself as well, but a lot of it is directed outward. And so it's still violence toward women. And also in that one, I found myself identifying with Wendy mm. versus in this one, I find myself identifying with Eleanor and Theodora. Less so Mrs. Montague. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the fact that when when it is a male, we're looking at violence, which not to stereotype that that's necessarily how it's always going to be. No. But I think that says something about society. Absolutely. Well, and there's something to be said about the fact that that is to some extent a self-insert for um, Stephen, Stephen King. King. Yeah. I don't know to what extent that mirrors his real life actions, but I think there is something to be said for the fact that that is probably based on his experience as a white man and the differences in fears, I guess, Mm -hmm. because in his situation, he doesn't have to be afraid of the man with the axe. He is the man with the axe. Mm -hmm. Which, like you said, is from a psychological standpoint, also very scary. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's interesting how that kind of plays out the power dynamics between men and women and the roles men and women often end up playing. Yeah. Both in horror and in real life. So yeah, to sum that up and tying back into what Dr. Montague was saying is how in this case with Nell, the haunting is this psychological manipulation of her. Not necessarily a possession like we might see in those types of horror movies, but this more subtle psychological manipulation. So a lot of people now come to The Haunting of Hill House having heard a lot of hype about it being such a scary haunting story, and then with a modern lens feel kind of like it wasn't that scary. Mm. What was your impression of it the first time? I think we read it in the middle of watching the Netflix series, which is really scary in a little bit of a different way. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Netflix series does a great job of taking the spirit of the book <laughs> and <laughs> for, yeah, pardon the pun, uh, taking the spirit of the book and turning it into a, an amazing piece of modern horror. But yeah, first time reading through it, I kind of came away like, oh, but nothing happened. <laughs> Where where she were all died. the spooks? Well, yeah, at the, at the very end, but yeah. it's like for the whole time, it's like okay, so there's a little bit, there's some knocking, there's some stuff showing up on the walls, but like where are all these like like the manifestations? Yeah, um, a lot of the things that I had kind of been conditioned to expect in that kind of movie, and I think in part it's probably because a lot of those movies owe it to this movie or this book, excuse me, for starting this whole thing and so it would make sense that there are certain ideas and things that would come later but also this book has a little bit of I believe it's called fridge horror where it's the kind of thing that maybe as you're going through it isn't all that scary but then it's after the fact when you're thinking about it later and I think we've even experienced that as we talk about it while we record these things that don't really strike you until later. And I think that's really interesting that in a lot of ways it's it's not in your face with the horror. It's much more subtle. Yeah, I think it's a lot more subtle. And some of what's scary about it requires a little bit of thinking. I don't know if that's the right yeah. way to put it. <laughs> well, and I think to a certain extent, too... Some of the horror comes from once you come at it from Eleanor's perspective. Because we also mm-hmm. both talked about how first time around we were very... Unsympathetic. Unsympathetic and pictured ourselves aligning with the other characters. Mm-hmm. But when you come into it from her perspective, it's terrifying. I think for me it was also a lot scarier reading it the second time because I knew what we were leading to as well. Mm. So each thing that happened that was just another straw on the camel's back, so to speak, became scarier. Yeah. The haunting doesn't necessarily begin and end with the house. The haunting begins with just Eleanor's life. Her whole life, she's haunted, essentially. Whether it's being haunted by her sick mother haunted by her dead mother uh and haunted. her guilt and her that guilt. she finally admits that she feels guilty for her mom passing because i don't even think she remembers this happening necessarily she's just afraid that maybe she did hear her mom calling out for medicine the night she died so she's just haunted by the possibility that maybe it was her fault yeah And then that just cleaves right into being haunted by the house. It's not just what happens in the house that's the scary part. You have to look... You have to take the whole thing in context to really feel the horror, I guess. Or the terror. The terror, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So... What is your spookiness rating for The Haunting of Hill House on a scale of one to five spooks? I'm going to give it... That's tough. 
especially because I know I can't give it half half stars, right? I can't give it a half spook. <laughs> what is half a spook? It's like when something's like, and you're like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm torn between three and four, and I think I'm going to lean towards four, partly because even though I may not find it quite as scary as some of the stories that have come later and that mark this as their ancestor, I guess. The longer I think about it, the scarier it gets. (laughs) And so I think I need to give it credit for that. Yeah, and to be fair, you didn't just read it, so I could see how that could be harder (laughs) to rate. Yeah, the spark notes weren't spooky at all. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd be called spook notes. Exactly. <laughs> I will give it a four, which I feel like is kind of a cop-out because I always like giving things fours for some reason. But, I mean, that's kind of where it lies for me because it was definitely scarier this time around because of all the things we just mentioned. Yeah, I don't really feel like I need to explain much more because I've already said it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we kind of spent the whole podcast explaining that part. Yes. So, in summary, I'm going to give it a four for spookiness because the first go around, I didn't find it that spooky. But as I think about it and explore it a little bit more, it becomes spookier. And overall, I just think it's really well done. In terms of the spook factor, at least. (laughs) On a scale of one to five haunts, how haunted is it? I want to give it a five. I feel like it defines what my concept of haunting is. Hmm. Or I don't know if it defines it. It exe- Well, no, it does define it because <laughs> Dr. Montague defines it, but it exemplifies a quintessential haunting for me. Ah, Okay. I think you've convinced me to give it a five, too. I I was leaning toward four, but I think you make a really good point that if I were asked to define a haunt or a haunted house, I can't think of anything that's more, that more accurately sums up a haunting, because this has the historical haunting of just the history of the house. It has the present-day haunting of the individuals who are currently in the house. It has the psychological components. It has the supernatural components. It's a big, creepy house. Yeah, it's very quintessential, I guess. (laughs) On a scale of one to five, how spousy is the haunting of Hill House? I'm gonna give it... I'm gonna give it a one. Because there is one spouse who features prominently. (laughs) Technically, there's the Dudleys, but they're kind of side characters. Eleanor and Luke are single. Theodora has some partner who doesn't really get described. And so we have Mrs. Montague... And that's about it. Also, I wouldn't describe her relationship to Dr. Montague as particularly spousy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to give it a two because I'm like that. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to give it a two on spousiness because of a couple of factors. One is that 
I think there are themes of spousiness. I still need to untangle them because I'm not really sure what to make of Dr. and Mrs. Montague's relationship, but it's weird enough, at least from in my opinion, I don't know what would have been the norm at the time, but the whole situation is weird enough that I notice it, mm. which makes me feel like, yeah, they're not, I wouldn't call them a good spousal pairing, but there's definitely something I think that the author wants you to notice about that. Interesting. Additionally, there's this theme of the phrase journeys end in lovers meeting, which is presumably a metaphor for Eleanor coming together with the house. And that is sprinkled so liberally throughout the book. I don't even know if sprinkled is the right word. <laughs> showered. That, yeah, it's showered throughout the book intentionally, I'm, I'm sure. I feel like that theme is an integral part, so I'm going to loop that in as well. Okay. I, I feel that. Well, that's our show. If you're new to Haunted Spouse, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five haunt review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and also on Podchaser. Uh, if you're not familiar, Podchaser is a platform aiming to provide an additional way to follow and review your podcasts um, outside of Apple Podcasts. So if you either don't have Apple Podcasts or if you've already reviewed us there and would like to rate and review us a second time. We'll love you up, twice as much. <laughs> then hit us up on Podchaser. Um, if you have comments, topic suggestions, or want to explain to us what a veranda is, send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Haunted Spouses. Next time on Haunted Spouse, we will be talking about Winchester House and the movie it inspired, Winchester. Thanks for listening. And remember... Hill House itself, not sane, stood against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, its walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone.